For many people, First Peoples First has come to stand for practical action, engaging elders to do welcomes, programming more Indigenous art, hiring an Indigenous actor for a mainstream role, or ensuring narratives of shared history are included. And all of these actions are positive and making a real contribution to social change. However, at the heart of this movement is a moral imperative, not for surface or tokenistic action, but for a deep reckoning with the injustice that characterises our nation. How do you acknowledge that this sovereign land was never ceded? How do you remember and acknowledge the violence that occurred in this place, in this country? Working 24, keep on knocking, they want more. Reaching deeper for your soul, keep on taking... Hello and welcome to a special season of The Colour Cycle. We're calling this the Fair Play Season, which has been recorded live at our symposium by the same name at the Wheeler Centre in February 2019. You can't be in the room for everything, so we're bringing you the best talks and panels from this groundbreaking two-day event. I'm Lena Nahlus from Diversity Arts Australia, or DARTS for short. We're Australia's national voice for cultural diversity in the arts and screen sectors. I'd like to start by acknowledging the traditional custodians of this land and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging, and to acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded. This was recorded on the lands of the Boomerang and the Wurundjeri peoples of the Kulin Nation, which was also where the Fair Play Symposium was held. This podcast was produced on the lands of the Baramadigal of the Darug Nation. First Peoples First, how do cultural organisations, institutions and arts practitioners put this principle into practice in ways that move beyond tokenism? This was one of the critical issues unpacked in depth by Genevieve Greaves. Genevieve is a Warami woman from Southeast Australia, based in Nam, sometimes known as Melbourne. She's an award-winning artist, curator and the manager transformation strategies in the First Peoples Department at Museums Victoria. The Fair Play Symposium was two days of talks and performances at the Wheeler Centre in Melbourne to interrogate issues around equity and inclusion in the Australian creative industries. And although Diversity Arts' focus is on ethno-cultural diversity, or in plain speak, non-Anglo migrants and refugees, we also work in partnership with First Nations and disability communities, and also with other communities. In her keynote address, Genevieve critically asks, is it enough to include so-called diverse people in current decision-making structures when the structures themselves are flawed and need to be reimagined? Following the keynote, Filipino-Australian poet, arts producer and community radio broadcaster Eleanor Jackson facilitates a Q&A with Genevieve. You have to bear with me, I'm, I'm dealing with the end of a cold and I've got a teething baby and if anyone's had a teething baby you know you don't sleep very much, so just bear with me today. Before I begin, I want to acknowledge the country that we're on today, the lands of the Bunurang and the Wurundjeri people, and I want to thank Janet for her welcome on behalf of Nawit Carolyn Riggs, who's dealing with some sorry business at the moment. So thank you, Janet. I'm a visitor to this country. I'm not from here, um, but I've called it home for for very many years now, more than 20 years. And I feel very fortunate to live here because I have many teachers from this place and I've had many experiences that have made me who I am. I've also made Victoria my home because it is a place of innovation where real social change is possible. It says something about Victoria that First Peoples exhibition is here and not in other states. And that comes from a real history of advocacy and resistance on behalf of the First Peoples of this state. 
And I think that potential for real social change is evident in this gathering here today, and that's why I'm so pleased to be here and really honoured to be giving this keynote to you. So I'm here as a First Nations woman, a Warramai woman from New South Wales, to speak from my perspective about diversity and fair play in the creative industries. I've titled this keynote, um, First Peoples First, as this is a statement that we hear more and more in the arts and culture sector in Australia, and I think one we need to unpack a little bit. At one level, this statement refers to the fact that we've been here for some 80,000 years, some extensive period of time, but it's now also emblematic of a cultural shift that's taking place, a movement that aims to acknowledge our shared history and work towards dealing with the unfinished business of invasion. But I'm conscious, though, um, when we speak of diversity and inclusion in this context where I'm standing today and in this room, that we're not just speaking about First Peoples. Our disability and culturally and linguistically diverse communities also very much need to be a part of this conversation. And our issues are not the same, but we do share uh, an exclusion from what would be considered the mainstream. And personally, um, in terms of my own story, I was a, a carer for many years for my brother, who was an artist with intellectual disability, um, an amazing drag queen who does shows about racism. And I'm very conscious um, of the devaluing of people with disabilities in this society and how rarely we hear from people with different abilities. I'm also the partner of a woman from a culturally diverse background, so I'm aware of some of the complexities of this experience in Australia such as the tensions between maintaining and connecting to the culture of your family while being prey to the acceptance or not of Australian society. I cannot speak to these spaces because they are not my own, but I do acknowledge our shared experiences of marginalisation and our collective need for change. So our experience, First Peoples' experience, since 1770 has been framed by colonisation. So colonisation is a structure, it's not an event. It didn't happen in 1770 and end there. Its impacts don't just exist in the past, they continue into the present. We remain a colonised country. And the process of colonisation, to put it simply, is one of destruction, eradication and then forgetting. For many years, First Peoples were made invisible and ignored by the nation-state and many of its occupants. There's a very famous statement made in 1968 by a man called W.E.H. Stenner, I don't know what that stands for, who called it the Great Australian Silence, a deliberate attempt to forget that this country was occupied at the time of invasion and that violence was enacted on people in order to occupy it. In the 1970s, revisionist historians worked hard to bring these narratives to light, supporting Indigenous people from across the country who demanded that our voices be heard and our truths be told. And if anyone here has read the Uluru Statement from the Heart with calls for a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, you will know that demand has not been met and this is still being called for today. There is a greater acknowledgement of our past and present in this country, but there are still many who do not know or do not want to know their own past. This occurs in an individual and a collective sense. Since the 1970s, many narratives have come forth. The stolen generations, frontier violence, domestic servitude, stolen wages. But they have been rejected and continue to be rejected by many. And that's not just those in power who want to create a positive, whitewashed national identity free of the stains of the past, but also average people. I worked recently on a film project for the Melbourne Museum sharing stories of colonial violence across the state of Victoria. It's called Black Days, Sunrises, Blood Runs, and you can see it in the exhibition. Each story of violence 
all of which occurred in the 19th century, were shared by a contemporary person. Most of our storytellers on this project are Indigenous, but we had one non-Indigenous woman who was willing to stand up and share these histories. For most of these storytellers, all located in regional Victoria, it wasn't an easy decision to stand up and tell these stories. They did this despite the potential risk to them, to them and their families. A backlash was expected. All these people were doing was sharing stories of massacres and violence that occurred some time ago, but somehow this could be viewed as a threat to their communities, and by that I mean their broader communities. We cannot underestimate the strength of denialism in this country. It operates at a meta level in our institutions, in our leadership, but it is also embodied by our citizens who are taught to reject the truths of our history. I recently taught a student who told me that she was struggling to fight against the voice in her head that was pushing against what she was learning in our class. Sadly, this is a state of being that really characterises what it is to be an Australian. Another strong belief aligned with this thinking is that Australia is a white country. You could be forgiving for, for, <laughs> forgiven for thinking that it is when you look at our power structures, the federal government or the high court bench or our university chancellors. The whiteness is blinding. But the idea of a white nation is completely false. Firstly, this country was diverse at the time of invasion in 1770. There were 250 nations. We are all now placed under the terms <clears throat> Aboriginal or Indigenous, presenting a homogeneity that does not reflect who we are. Not only are we culturally diverse, our experiences of colonisation are so different across the continent. Here in the southeast, we experienced invasion very early on. In parts of the centre, First Peoples did not meet settlers until the 1980s. Secondly, our population has been diverse since invasion. Just one example, the makeup of the First Fleet was not just English people. There were Scottish and Irish and Welsh, there were Jewish and there were black people on the First Fleet. Our nation has always been a place of many cultures and we need to reflect this diversity simply because it is the reality of who we are. Our sector is a key space of representation. We create representations that communicate who we are as people, as communities, as a country. We create a sense of belonging and identity individually and collectively. It is our responsibility to tell our stories, share our knowledge, imagine our future, provide spaces to connect, to laugh, to cry, to rage, to change. And it is crucial that these myriad representations created by us reflect who we actually are and not a false sense of ourselves. And that's really why we're here today, to speak about the deep disparities that still exist. As rep representation is also about power, not just the power to create, to have a stage, to have your story heard, it is also the power of decision-making. Who is at the table? Who is on the board? Where does real power lie and who is wielding it? I want to take this a step further and argue that it is not enough to include diverse people in current decision-making structures. These structures themselves need to be examined. What are the cultural foundations of these structures and how do they need to be reimagined to provide systemic change? These are not easy questions to answer, particularly if you're in the early stages of your awakening and attempts to right these wrongs. There are no easy solutions or quick fixes in this space of restoration and justice. Real change requires critical conversations 
a sense of uncomfortability. That's when you know you're really onto something if you're feeling uncomfortable. And what the theorist Claire Land calls uh, um, in her excellent book, Decolonising Solidarity, which I recommend, a reckoning with complicity. How have you benefited from the invasion of these lands and what are you willing to give up to atone for this? For many people, First Peoples First has come to stand for practical action, engaging elders to do welcomes, programming more Indigenous art, hiring an Indigenous actor for a mainstream role, or ensuring narratives of shared history are included. And all of these actions are positive and making a real contribution to social change. However, at the heart of this movement is a moral imperative, not for surface or tokenistic action, but for a deep reckoning with the injustice that it characterises our nation. It is a collective endeavour, but it is also an individual journey. <clears throat> How do you acknowledge that this sovereign land was never ceded? How do you remember and acknowledge the violence that occurred in this place, in this country? One of my favourite theorists, Deborah Bird-Rose, states... To write as if the suffering of those who were harmed never mattered would be to perpetuate violence in the present. This violence, still largely unrecognised, continues in many forms and is not just enacted against us, it is enacted against others who are marginalised and excluded from this society and it is also enacted against country, leading us to the current crises we face in the spectre of climate change. If First Peoples were really put first in Australia if the unfinished business of the nation was finally reckoned with, it would transform our society into a space that is almost hard to envision in the present day. It would be a place where our voices, our knowledge and our cultures would be valued and heard. Our country could be healed. It's not just about people, but it's also about land. There is a hope, there is hope inherent in the statement First Peoples First that real change is possible, that future generations will not face the same oppression that has gone before them. It is a change that I hope you will all embrace. Thank you. Thank you so much for your words. There is a lot to open up in that conversation, so if you need a bit of time to grab some water. Um, and I have several questions that I would love to ask, but you have generously asked that we open the conversation first to the floor, acknowledging that there are so many here who have already got insight into, I suppose, that transformative reckoning mm. that you're really talking about. Mm. We would love to welcome you to ask questions of Genevieve, whether it's from your practice area or, I suppose, trying to get some more detail on some of the initiatives that you're really flagging there. Can I ask our Wheeler Centre folk with the microphones to make themselves known? And if you do have a question that you would like to kick us off, then please pop your hand or some other item in the air. Hi, my name's Samsara. Thank you for that speech. Um, I was interested in when you said that it is our responsibility to tell our stories and make our spaces and etc. etc. I was just wondering with how that fits in with the the um, the older perspective of, of where mm. artists, I guess, you know, particularly I'm speaking about able white male mm. people, like you know, um, to tell stories for the people who can't, mm. um, which was a worthy cause. But how does that fit in now with kind of 
this this new version of how we all see ourselves. Yeah, thanks for raising that. And it's a it's a very problematic model, isn't it, for people to take other people's stories and present them. And the model I'm interested in is that collaborative, intercultural model, where um, you know, as an artist or curator, I see myself as a facilitator to work with people um, or to work with my own story or however I want to do it um, in a respectful and collaborative way. And that requires relationships. So relationships that ideally are ongoing, that um, span some time um, and aren't just <clears throat> relationships based on a singular project where you like, oh, I actually need an Aboriginal voice <laughs> in this project or, or some other voice and you're seeking someone out to fill a gap. Ideally, they're projects or, um, that have come from communities that communities want, that actually focus on the needs of communities. So they they come from communities and you as a, a non-Indigenous artist facilitator, if that's who you are, work with those communities to realise what they want to share and what they want to tell. And that, as I said, takes time and it takes relationships and it takes trust and a lot of false starts and mistakes. Um, but that's that's the model that I think is a much better model for us moving into the future rather than people trying to tell each other's stories from afar. At the back. If you'd like, you could also introduce yourself just so that we um, might be a little more person-to-person connected. Um, Hi, I'm Andy Butler. I'm a writer, curator and artist, um, lapsed arts worker. Uh, (laughs) It was really um, great what you were saying, Genevieve. I think there was one interesting point that... You mentioned that it's not only about the people who are at the decision-making table, but the processes of making those decisions that yeah. need to change. Yeah. I think that was really insightful. There's, um, yeah, I guess having worked in the sector and being that person who's been at the decision-making table and then realising that the processes are maybe antagonistic to any real change is, is a real issue. But I'm just wondering how you envision those decision-making processes changing. Yeah, with a lot of work. <laughs> so I've, I've, I've had the same experience. You know, I've sat on boards and um, found the whole process really constrictive and not... Um, and, and I haven't really been able to necessarily have a voice or represent our perspective or, or really make any real changes to the organisation I'm meant to be participating in because it's a very colonial structure. Um, the governance model of a lot of organisations. I don't... I know people who try and subvert it and set up advisory committees and, you know, there are there are different models emerging, but I would like to see that happen so much more because I think even in Aboriginal organisations we often have those colonising governance structures, which is just not how we should be operating and it really undermines our culture and undermines our own value systems and our knowledge systems. So it's extremely colonising and perpetuates that. Yep. So, yeah, I'd love to see what you do and other people do to <clears throat> decolonise and deconstruct the governance structures to yeah, not just have a couple of diverse people at the table but really look at how organisations are run and how they operate. And I think there are some, a lot of exciting things happening around the country with people trying to, to meet this challenge, but we need to do more work in this space. Just here at the stage left, stage Hi. right. Uh, my no. name is I'm a filmmaker. Uh, what do you think is the uh, ideal model, if not the board? Like, what have you seen that's worked really well that you'd like to see more of? Well, at the, at the museum, we had a model for our exhibition, which was um, ended up being called Yulange. 
So we invited, this was myself and Caroline Martin and Vicky Cousins, and, you know, we're building an exhibition that was meant to have community voice and meant to be, you know, in partnership with community. And we had a steering committee at the museum, which is a very effective steering committee, the Aboriginal Cultural Heritage Advisory Committee, but they meet four times a year for three hours, four hours. And I, when I got there, I sort of said, oh, so who's my steering committee? And they said, oh, you can use ACAC. And I said, oh, so how much time will I have with ACAC? And they said, oh, you can have half an hour each meeting. And that's like two hours a year. <laughs> two, and I was like, I can't, or we can't build an exhibition with two hours a year of cultural guidance, you know, from elders. So we, um, and it took, it took a lot of work, like a lot of advocacy within the museum, a lot of pushing um, by all of us to get the museum to a point where they would allow us to build the model that we needed to create this exhibition that is so celebrated and it's so celebrated because of the community engagement at its heart. But what we did was we had 16 people who were respected elders um, and community members from across the state who all brought different things um, and who loosely represented regions, but not even, you know. And um, we, we made time for cultural business. So we met for a week at a time, every six weeks, it was a huge, expensive undertaking. The museum had to invest a lot of money in that. And I, when I got there, I think their community engagement budget was $8,000. And by the end, it was, we spent a lot more than that. But I've been on many big projects where the community engagement budget is $8,000, like huge national projects, and it's like $8,000. Okay, what are you going to do with that, seriously? But, um, yeah, we built relationships. So we brought this group together, and it was the most extraordinary experience for all of us. You know, there was a real respect between the museum and the community represented by this group who named themselves Yulange, the Law and Knowledge Holders. And um, the exhibition, the success is down to them because it's their stories. They created all the frameworks, the welcome. You know, when we said we want to do a, a, a creation story, they said, and we wanted to do... Well, we didn't know. We thought we had to do creation stories from across the state. And they said, no, do Bunjil. This is a country of Bunjil. Do Bunjil. But we want them in a nest made out of real wood. <laughs> And we're like, oh, how are we ever going to do that? But, the, you know, people were so committed to this group of elders that the museum staff, they did everything they could to meet every desire they had. And we have this beautiful creation cinema now. So that's a long answer, sorry, but that's a model. And now we, we've continued Yulange <clears throat> into the future, but we're still working out what it looks like. We don't exactly know. And when we started Yulange, we didn't actually know what that model looked like either. We didn't really know what we were doing. We just tried something new. And for that project, that worked really well. So it's about um, probably taking risks, trying new things. I don't know what the absolute model is because every situation is different and it really needs to be contextual to place, to people, to the organisation. So you can't sort of say there is an ultimate model that's going to work for everybody. It's something that you've got to build from the ground up with a lot of conversations and a lot of listening and actually working out what, what's required and what's needed and, and really be responsive to that, you know. Um, listen in a way where you're making real change, not paying lip surface to it. Yeah. Sorry, long answer. Even if it is a long answer, I actually have a, a further question to that because I think in some ways what you're describing is a shift in institutional power. Mm. And whenever we ask institutions to shift power there's often a moment of cognitive dissonance. Do you mean like, what? Yeah. What do you mean I don't share power? What do you mean I'm not connected to the community? Like, I have yeah. this subcommittee. Yeah. And in that moment of cognitive dissonance, mm. most people and many organisations shut down. Mm. 
Mm. What is it that enabled those power holders to take that risk with you? Um, was it relationships? It was a battle. Oh. <laughs> Can you tell us a bit and, and about that? <laughs> it's different everywhere in, in every situation, but that particular situation was a battle. So it was two opposing sides, us on one side. And we were strong because we were together, you know, and there was more than one of us as well fighting. And the museum at that stage on the other side. Um, and not all of the museum, you know, many good people in the museum, real willingness and desire. It's, and it's, in fact, a very different place now. But at that point in time... It was a battle. This is the way we do things. We're not doing that. No, that's too much money. It's not worth it. Da, da, da. So we had to fight and it took years. It didn't happen overnight, you know. And also leverage, you know. Um, that's utilising leverage. At that point in time, the museum had a huge budget. They had to build this exhibition and if they didn't have people to build it, they'd be in trouble. So they had to work with us. So um, there are opportunities sometimes. There are openings. You know, if I tried to, you know, if we tried to make that change when we didn't have a big exhibition project that had to be developed, they probably wouldn't have listened at all. But there was a, a, a need for engagement. So, and at that point, we were able to create some structural change that just seemed like it happened for a moment and with an exhibition and maybe then disappeared. But in fact, that structural change has, is happening now. I think, from that moment in time. I was very disheartened after the opening of First Peoples because I felt like we'd shifted all this ground and then we had to walk away and, you know, because I'm not an ongoing... I was an ongoing staff member at that point. And um, a friend said to me, you know, you throw the rock into the water and the ripples take some time to reach the edge. You know, you've made... We've made an inroad and it'll take some time for that change to be felt. And it did. But now we have a CEO who is putting First Peoples first in our organisation. So um, has created a whole First Peoples department led by First Peoples. And that's a huge shift from what was happening when we built the exhibition. So um, I'm not saying the exhibition created all of that, but I think it helped create a cultural shift to what we have now. So, you know, that's, that's a, you know, eight-year story. These changes don't happen quickly. They happen over time. And, and we were just a moment in time at the museum because there's a whole lot of other people who've been, you know, members of the Victorian community who've been working or fighting that museum for a long time to create structural change. So we were just one moment. And all the work that they'd done had helped create that opportunity. And then we had this moment in time and a changing society that allowed for something different to happen. Yeah. A question here at the front. Hi, I'm Caroline Bowditch from Arts Access Victoria. Hi. Hello. Um, thanks for all your brilliant acknowledgements at the beginning of your keynote. One of the things that I'm really conscious of coming back to Australia after being away for so long is that when we talk about diversity, um, we often talk about it in these silos in terms of we're talking about First Nations people mm. or disability mm. or cold communities. Mm. and. I'm really interested in how do we get better at the intersections? Mm. Is that something we're interested in or does that water it down? Like I was really interested to hear you talk mm. about the decolonisation of solidarity. Mm. How do we... Yeah. That's such an interesting question. <laughs> and I'm only on the edge of that thinking, really. I, I, I think it's a conversation that needs to happen. Because I, I think, you know, I think that we have... There are connections. And, like, my brother, for instance, is an Aboriginal, disabled, gay man. 
you know, and a drag queen and performer and incredible. Yeah, you know, he is an intersection, you know, and, and even, yeah, his identity is so fluid. And you're right, the way we solo things is not necessarily useful. I guess it's just the way we talk, manage information at this point. And I was even struggling in writing this keynote. You know, I had to... To, to really think through it but didn't have enough time to think deeply enough to really answer your question <laughs> in a deep way. But I do agree that there, there could be, I think through the idea of decolonisation, there could be a way that we start to talk about more of the connections between us in terms of our experiences. But I think, you know, we also have to be so careful to acknowledge that we are different as well but we are different as well as first peoples like that's the thing that's so it's so diverse but I I I was I was really conscious of not speaking for anyone and that's because I'm conscious of that but I do have some little understanding yeah sorry I'm just going on a bit now (laughs) you can tell I'm tired not at all (laughs) Carol I mean Caroline it is really um it's such a resonant question for a gathering like this Mm. that brings multiple silos into the room together and I literally have the words reject long-standing silos and homogeneity of disadvantage Mm. underneath which is how do we balance that with specific needs Mm. And that's a real tension, mm. which I don't think that Genevieve, mm. you or any individual here mm. is responsible for knowing the answer. But I just even wanted to draw back to your comments around context, mm. that if we treat the place, the country, the people, the time, the you know the structures, the infrastructure, and all of those things as something that is specific and relevant then actually we kind of get halfway there because then you see a person who is a drag queen Mm. and a gay man and Mm. Aboriginal and a performer and has a disability because you're looking at a whole person, not Mm. because you're wanting to get as many of those tick boxes Mm. checked off Mm. for your demographic reporting, Mm -mm. which is a really... (laughs) Subtle tilt, but so mm. meaningful for me at least. Mm. But maybe that's the big picture question for us all yeah. for the next two days. Can I welcome any more comments from the floor? And perhaps I would love to call on those in other industries or other sectors that are perhaps not Indigenous led and see if you have some insights into ways that your organisation has perhaps considered some of the transformative power structures that Genevieve has flagged in the museum sector, which I think would be relatively rare, but I would love to hear from the room. <laughs> oh, hi. Um, my name is Nilmini Fernando, and I'm actually uh, sort of working at the artist-academic-activist link, and i am actually been doing a lot of work in the family violence sector... Mm. And I am dealing with wanting to save intersectionality from the system and what you're talking about, Caroline. And mm. it's, it seems to be like I'm going through this process at the moment where I'm being, you know, somebody at the top gets the job to do intersectionality and mainstream it. Then all the sort of NGOs and all the people around the edges get invited in. Mm. We share our ideas, but we don't have the power to do mm. it differently. So I'm... You know, so I can see how that happens from structural. Mm. And the arts is not considered healing in any way. Mm. And I think even if it's not actually performed or um, exhibited, the arts need to be part of people's healing, Mm. telling their stories and people's Mm. healing. And I often find that the stories are detached from the body of the person telling it. So Mm. 
the sort of ideas I try and work with is to get the embodied storytelling and try and make a platform for many voices. And But those kind of projects, like, don't get the funding because we are siloed. Mm. You know, for example, I'm in Derebin, and Derebin Council has an intercultural department and a building and everything. Mm. Then I approach the gender equity person to try and get through that hoop. Mm. That gender equity person is a white feminist mm. who then I have to justify that I'm not a white feminist. I mm. come from a black and black. You know, so all the different hoops you have to get through and the siloing, in fact, is the methodology. That is what's colonising us. Mm. And I think the division of identities, we're following what the state decides is intersectionality. There's only one story that we have to follow. Mm. And I find that if you're in a smaller organisation or if you're desperate for a job or trying to survive, mm. saying the wrong thing can be very uh, dangerous to the organisation, can be dangerous for yourself. Mm. You know, so yeah, that, I, I can see how in the arts the same sort of structures get in the way um, of people and that, that the, the major discourse we are following the master discourse mm. of what anti-racism is what intersectionality is. I don't know if I've gone off topic, but I can really mm. speak to that and the importance of having people who have you know, survived um, mental health. It all, it, all of them come together in mm. family violence, and I think mm. having the opportunity to tell stories, their own stories, needs to be a major consideration in arts access for people. Yeah, there's so many interesting points in what you've said, and the only thing I would add to it is that at times we do require our own spaces as well. That's just the other thing to consider. Our own spaces in order to maintain ourselves and to strengthen our, our culture and our identity and our voice. And, you know, that's what the Koori Heritage Trust was for me many years ago and many people was a, a, a embodiment of our values, you know, and our, our cultural frameworks that strengthen them. So we, it's difficult because we do need that, but... You're absolutely right in terms of the, the difficulty of navigating systems and because our projects don't fit under any banner. Like I was on the board of um, Bamira, the possum skin cloak makers, for a couple of years and it's a southeastern practice. Um, but there's no southeastern governance space. That's South Australia, Victoria and New South Wales. There's no way to envision um, possum skin cloaking, making across our cultural region because that cultural region doesn't exist except in our minds and in our cultures. So there's, you know, it's, it's so difficult in so many ways to navigate those spaces. And the, the issue really is that we're under-resourced. <laughs> you know, that's the other issue to do this work, which is so incredibly important because, yeah, arts, as you say, aren't, deeply understood in terms of the power of what we do, in terms of the healing work, in terms of the connections we create between communities and, and strengthening people's identity and voice. And you know, just watching my brother go through that process of making his show, which was very difficult because I helped him with it, but, um, you know, from you know, not feeling valued and not feeling like he had anything to say to being heard and celebrated on the stage, you know, was such an incredible transformation in this one person through having that opportunity through Footscray Community Arts Centre to make that show. So, yeah, it needs to be more broadly understood. Here in the front. Uh, Veronica Pardo from Multicultural Arts Victoria. Um, my question is about whether you think that a human rights frame potentially adds meat to the bones of that intersectional conversation, mm. whether that's something that unites us. It's certainly a conversation that I think 
needs to be had much more powerfully in this country mm. and whether you have used human rights frameworks to further your advocacy in the particular space that you're referring to this morning. I might have done it without really realising that I have. <laughs> My, um, yeah, the frameworks I'm really working with at the moment are decolonising and intercultural frameworks, but, yeah, I'm sure they're useful. I just, I don't even know, like, how we really begin to dismantle all of the stuff around us at this point in terms of, yeah, really shifting decolonising power structures. So, yeah, I think any tools that are useful, use them, definitely, yeah. I think I saw a couple of hands go up, one at the very back and then one here kind of in the middle. Uh, hi, it's Martin Payton from Footscray Community Arts Centre and uh, you mentioned Footscray Community Arts Centre Genevieve and I, I thought I would uh, refer to the way in which Footscray Community Arts Centre has been able to be guided by an Indigenous advisory group yeah. and have elders in residence. But particularly the work that you started with the training of working in First Nations cultural context, mm. I think has been, in, particularly from my uh, brief experience in the last mm. year and seeing the impact that's had on organisations that take that on, I thought it'd be great for you to expand on that if you could a little yeah, bit. Yeah, no, that's... Thank you. Because Footscray Arts Centre's had two elders in residence for some time now. I can't remember how long, but it must be several years. Yeah, so Annie Carolyn Briggs and Uncle Larry Walsh, who are employed by Footscray Arts Centre to be present, you know, to guide staff, to guide projects, to provide advice. And Uncle Larry particularly is a fixture at Footscray Arts Centre. If anyone goes there, you'll see Uncle Larry. And he, yeah, he's, he's, he's so proud of Footscray and, and gives so much to that space because he really believes in it. But I was also a member of the Indigenous Advisory Committee for some years. We always wanted a better name than that, but we never got that far. Yeah, and, and, and we've been sort of... Like, Footscray's given us the space to have the conversations that we need to have about what we want Footscray to do as an art centre and, and who it should be for and who we're connecting with. And those conversations are ongoing. Um, they're not all resolved, but Footscray allows us the space just to work out what we want to do. And, um, like, for instance, there's been a big concert for many years called Woman Jaker and you know the council want it to be a certain way and a, a big sort of event that draws in a lot of the community and a lot of our elders were like no we actually don't want that you know we really want something that's grassroots and about us and that's been a big shift and a difficult shift and difficult conversations with a key funding body as well but that's something that you know if you're going to set up these groups you actually have to listen to what people have to say as difficult as that may be and as much as it may not align with your frameworks. But I've also been teaching there and now Paola Bala is running that course. And the, the key things we look at in that course are um, yeah, decolonising intercultural frameworks but also um, racial literacy and whiteness. And my friends Odette Kalada and Diane Jones teach that course. And it's a really... Racial literacy is an extraordinary tool for just understanding how to talk about race which of course doesn't exist, and to look at implicit bias and to, to have those conversations, but also to be able to position yourself. And that's, you know, um, I was sort of talking about this being a collective journey that we need to work together, but it's also an individual journey of placing yourself, of understanding your own story, of how you came to be here. It, as You know, those rich, complex stories of our belonging or not belonging to place. So, um, yeah, I really enjoy doing that work but I, I tell you what there's always tears <laughs> it's not easy work to do it's um you know in interrogating your own position and really shifting your perspective can be hard work 
yeah, and so I'm grateful to the people who make that commitment to making those changes. Yeah. Thanks, Martin. Genevieve, I think that we may be reaching near the end of our allotted time, but you have, in just that brief kind of half hour with us, opened up so many topics that I know will be revisited in the next few days. That sense of what uh, structural colonialism and power do to configure the relationships and the ways that we make art and engage with communities, um, revisiting, I guess, that real moral imperative mm. to acknowledge and, and kind of reflect that collective denialism mm. um, and then to try and say what is it that would need to change specific to that context and how would we do it. It's not an easy packaged answer of here, <laughs> no. do it today and this is what it looks like but it's been wonderful to have just a few insights into your practice and the impact that that is having uh, particularly in the museum and Indigenous sectors. May I please ask the room to welcome you and thank you again graciously for this time. I, I deeply appreciate it. Thank you. That was Genevieve Greaves and Eleanor Jackson at the Fair Play Symposium held in Melbourne in February 2019. This episode was recorded live by our fantastic symposium partners, the Wheeler Centre. We'll be releasing the entire Fair Play Symposium week by week, so stay tuned for more episodes. Thanks for listening to The Colour Cycle, a podcast series made by Diversity Arts Australia, the national advocate for cultural diversity across all areas, of Australia's art, screen and creative sectors. You can subscribe free wherever you download your favourite podcasts or visit our website for more info, videos and resources, diversityarts.org.au. Please share this podcast with your friends and send us your thoughts, comments, feedback. Just record a short voice memo on your phone and email it to us at info at diversityarts.org.au. Please help us to keep this podcast going by making a small donation through Patreon and become a Colour Cycle patron. Any size donation is welcome and this will help us share experiences and strategies from artists and insiders. Find us at patreon.com slash diversity arts Australia. Thank you Genevieve Greaves and Eleanor Jackson and to the symposium production team, Eugenia Flynn, Sonia Mermand, Junyi Kwok, Dr Paula Aboud, Jinghua Quien, Dr. Margaret Mayhew, and Monique Choi. Thank you also to our Fair Play Symposium partners and supporters Creative Victoria, the Wheeler Centre, the British Council, AI Media, Feral Arts and Arts Front, Arts Access Victoria, Koori Heritage Trust, Regional Arts Victoria, Multicultural Arts Victoria, and Screen Australia. And thanks to MC Trey for letting us use her track daily. Thank you to our organisational sponsor, Information and Cultural Exchange, who provide us with a home and also the facilities to produce this podcast. This podcast was produced by Jennifer Macy and Brianna Kennedy. I'm Lena Nahlus. Thanks for listening and yalla bye.